Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is April the 17th, 2023, and we're getting towards May, that big event, the coronation of the next King of England, a certain Charles. Um, but there is, or there are problems associated with this coronation of the next King of England. Uh, apparently his son is going to attend, but not bringing his wife, a, a certain Meghan Markle. Lots of controversy about that. Uh, it's what uh, the Washington Post calls an ugly coronation compromise. Uh, apparently, she decided to stay at home because her kids weren't invited. This is, of course, as always, when it comes to the British royal family, a global event. Uh, the Hindu Times, for example, even uh, reports that Prince Harry had peace talks with King Charles before accepting the coronation invite. I'm expecting hysteria around the world uh, for this coronation. We're already getting lots of tantalizing previews, the procession, the music, the regalia, even something they, they're calling the coronation quiche. I'm not quite sure what that is. I'm sure it will be delicious. I guess one of the reasons why there's such hysteria around the British royal family, regular viewers and listeners know I'm not necessarily their biggest fans, is that we haven't had a coronation for a long, long time. The last one was in June 1953, that's uh, almost 70 years ago, a certain Elizabeth was crowned. Um, and I'm thrilled today that we are talking to a novelist who has a new book out. As it happens, I suspect she poisoned the, the old queen to get her <laughs> book out at the right time. Uh, Jennifer Robson is one of uh, Canada's leading historical novelists, and she has a new book out, Coronation Year about not 2023, but 1953, and she's joining us from Toronto. Um, timely, Jennifer, as I suggested, yes. did you poison the old queen? I did. Pop I did over to Balmoral and slip something in her tea? I know. I was very fond of Her Majesty uh, and would, have, did not, did not. I, I have to say, bump her off. Funnily enough, the, the book uh, it was commissioned in 2020. Uh, I had finished writing it. It was fully edited uh, and laid out. And in fact, early copies uh, were circulating um, before uh, the Queen passed away uh, last September. Um, the, the intention had been that it would uh, be uh, that it would be published in the year of the 70th anniversary of her coronation. Um, the fact that it happens now to coincide with, with a new coronation is something I did not anticipate uh, uh, when I was writing the book. Um, and then the we, time- um, Jen, Jennifer, we, we did a show um, a couple of weeks ago uh, with Sally Bedell-Smith, hmm. Um, who yeah. has a new book out, another royal biographer, George VI and Elizabeth. It's a book about Queen Elizabeth's parents. And she really stressed, and I'm sure you're familiar with the book and, and Sally's work, she stressed what good parents they were, how they brought their daughter up in a, 
in a in a in a very responsible way. In contrast, I guess, to George the Sixth's brother. What kind of people were they? This royal family back in the 1950s were they as stiff upper lip as awkward as they seem to be today i i don't know i so if we if we go back to the the queen's parents i think one crucial thing and then sally has certainly talked about this in her work it, it to remember is that there was no expectation uh that you that the duke and duchess of york would ascend to the throne uh that you know the queen uh the Queen Elizabeth II uh, was was not the the heir uh, presumpt the heiress presumptive in, until she was was ten years old. Um, so she was not brought up in her earliest years with the expectation that she would become monarch. Um, and so there. Was and you might just remind everyone. Um... Jennifer of what happened, the reason for that. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so she there was no expectation, but then her her uncle, uh, who uh, you know was the Prince of Wales, and and then later Edward the Eighth, uh, his abdication uh, in 1936 uh, meant that his younger brother was very unexpectedly uh, over another and uh, over another American woman with rather bad. PR as well. Well, you know the the the, the Wallace Simpson, in, in, you know, was was uh, uh, you know then uh, could not possibly have been more unsuitable. Uh, in, it, again, assessed against the backdrop of the times uh, as as the as the consort to a king. Um, so he 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 uh, abdicated before he had been crowned. That's a crucial point. He had not been crowned, and more to the point, he had not been anointed as a monarch, which is a key difference for people who are you know uh, minutely interested in the in the, the British monarchy. Um, and then so that mean that meant that Princess Elizabeth overnight. Um, became uh, became the heiress presumptive to the throne and her life forever changed. And I think an important point is that uh, she was never given a, a choice in the matter um, from the moment uh, of, of her father's ascension to the throne, or rather accession to the throne. Uh, she, you know, her life forever changed. It was set on, tra on a trajectory that very few of us can imagine. Um, I can't, really imagine a worse nightmare for myself or frankly for my children than to be put in that position. Um, and under those circumstances, I think it's very hard to have anything approaching a normal upbringing. Um, that the queen was a, a pretty sensible, level-headed, steady sort of person, I think uh, goes down to her, her childhood before all of this descended upon them. And, and the, I think the fact that she had just a fairly steady personality um, she was she was not given to kind of extremes of emotion either way um that and her parents seem pretty down to earth in contrast with um with his brother the notorious edward. yeah um, i mean the, the edward the eighth would have been a spectacularly unfit king uh, during world war ii would have been the last king probably he probably would have invited the germans in yeah, yeah let's mean, talk uh, about um the novel your your i think this is your seventh novel jen uh, you wrote one before the gown um about london in 1947 so you're clearly drawn to both the royal family and post-war london or interwar yet London. What is it about this period that makes it so interesting for you? Not as a historian, you have background as a historian. I think yeah. you were at Oxford, you were at St. Anthony's College, but you've made your living or you make your living as a novelist. What is it about this period that intrigues you so much as a writer? 
I think uh, with well, all of my books have been set during and after the two world wars and on balance, uh, more uh, of the books uh, have been set in post-war periods because I think it's what happens to a country uh, in, in, in the aftermath of a war. It can be just as interesting and sometimes even arguably more interesting than what happens during the war. I mean, during the war, War years are, are, are tough. Um, certainly, uh, you know, the, the, the war years in Britain were, if in the Second World War, were, uh, were catastrophically difficult for people. But there was a, there was a sense of, uh, you know, the shared, um, uh, the shared burden uh, that people were in it together. And uh, a certain amount of kind of adrenaline propels you through those years. Uh, but then what happens after the end of the war. Uh, so, you know, the day after VE Day, uh, for example, you're, you know, you're cleaning up the mess, <laughs> you know, either the party at home or, or one of the people street, you know, sweeping the streets of London after the absolutely, you know, uh, kind of galactically sized uh, party uh, that happened that night. And, um, and the war is won, uh, but you don't really, uh, as a nation, have much to show for it, apart from the fact that, that, Hitler is not sitting in Buckingham Palace, um, which is a very big plus, obviously. Um, but uh, after the war in Britain, um, as opposed to North America, uh, where things became, you know, got steadily better very quickly in uh, the United States and Canada, in Britain, as in continental Europe, uh, life remained extraordinarily difficult uh, in the post-war period. Um, and in fact, in some ways, day-to-day uh, -day living became more difficult. Uh, the shortages increased. Um, you know, housing uh, was very difficult to come by. Uh, people's wages, relatively speaking, decreased. And uh, it was a pretty, you know, wartime austerity continued for years. It was a pretty a bleak time for a lot of people. And what I was really interested in was, was I was interested in talking about this period but I knew it would be a hard sell like you know okay does anybody want to to buy my book about a miserable period in, uh, in post-war Britain I, I didn't think that would be uh, necessarily very palatable to readers uh, what I thought would be very interesting is to set it against a backdrop of these um, major royal events uh, not only for you know the 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 kind of the glamour that it provides um, but also because of the contrast between the way the royals were living and the world in which they lived and the lives of ordinary people. As a historian, I've always been much more drawn to the lives of, of people uh, like my own ancestors who are all from Britain. Uh, so so fill in the politics here, uh, Jennifer. The, the yeah. Labour government was elected after the mm -hmm. war. Yeah. Uh, Britain, one of the experiences of Britain, I think, during the war was a feeling that they couldn't go back to the pre-war yeah classist system mm -hmm. but then of course it's important to remember that amazingly enough in 1953 a certain Winston Churchill remained Prime Minister of the United Kingdom um mm -hmm. it was his second or third term he was re he was he was voted out and then voted back in yeah. again what was the the politics of the time like was there a a, a disappointment with the post-war settlement I think so. I think people felt, uh, you know, there, there was, uh, there was one, there was a poster that famously uh, was was withdrawn. Uh, you know, second, a, a lot of people have heard of the "Keep Calm and Carry On" poster, but there was another 
uh, poster, and I'm paraphrasing it here because I don't have it in front of me, but it was something along the lines of, you know, uh, your hard work, your conviction, uh, your selflessness will bring us victory. And the intent of the poster was to say, as in you, the individual will bring us, you know, the nation victory. What it was interpreted as was you, the ordinary working man, will bring us the ruling classes victory. Um, and there was that sense of us versus them that intensified in this period. Um, and what I find really uh, startling is it, there there were very much those feelings. That's why labor, uh, you, you know, uh, won so decisively uh, at the end of the war. Um, that people really wanted to change. Uh, they they wanted uh, their sacrifices to mean something in the in the larger scheme of things. At the same time. Uh, the royal wedding, I was very surprised when doing my research that it was so popular uh, just across the boards. And even people who who would have stood by uh, their small R Republican sentiments uh, were actually, um, you know, found themselves, however reluctantly, however maybe ashamedly, uh, finding themselves found themselves feeling quite enthusiastic about the royal wedding. I think because it, it signified again something larger than themselves, uh, and it was something hopeful ultimately. Um, as is, you know, as was the the, the coronation of 1953, um, which you know by the time you know it, it's really only a measure of you know six plus years that divide the two events. Uh, but what you see, or rather seven, I suppose, what you what you actually see uh, is a, a real change in uh, the kind of the state of mind of the ordinary uh, of the ordinary person living in Britain, uh, and it, it you steadily what you steadily see, and this is reflected in. Uh, you know, not only just opinion polls, but also in, say, materials that you see uh, um, from um, interviews and mass observation, for example, um, that that ordinary people were feeling hopeful at last, that there is a sense that maybe they come through the worst of it, that uh, the economy was slowly starting to uh, be rebuilt, uh, that um, ordinary people's lives were becoming uh, slightly better in terms of having access to consumer goods um, and, you know, those little luxuries, uh, you know, just taking... How provincial off. was it? Your book, um, you, one of your previous novels was Our Darkest mm -hmm. Night, a novel about yeah. Italy in the Second World War. One of the major characters in your book is an Italian photographer, a Holocaust survivor. Mm -hmm. I wasn't around in London in 1953. I was born in, in 1960 and spent my first 25 years in London. And during that period, London became much more international. My understanding was in the early 50s, it was still an incredibly provincial place, really cut off. There was very little air travel. Mm -hmm. uh, the beginnings of immigration from what had once been the empire, what was about to become the ex-empire. But London and the United Kingdom, Britain and London, uh, England in, in 1953 was still very much cut off from the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? It, that, that is absolutely true. Uh, you know, in the post-war, immediate post-war period, uh, you weren't allowed to travel abroad. I mean, it really, it was just prohibited um, uh, for reasons that kind of seem very specious now. Um, and, what do you mean and, you weren't allowed? You weren't allowed to 
take the ferry to France? Well, just for just for holidaying, it was it, it was very it was very limited, and not only those limit those those restrictions, you know, came were had pretty much vanished by the early 1950s. Uh, but you know, the era of people holidaying abroad uh, really. Does not arrive until until a, a little bit. Later. So tell us about your Italian hero, the the young uh, photographer, and, and why you make uh, Stella Donati the one of the central characters in the book. So she's so as you say, she's she's a figure from an earlier book of mine. In fact, my previous book that um, was inspired by the experiences of my husband's family, uh, who who sheltered Jews uh, on their farm in northern Italy. Um, and it was something that was never really talked about in the family, and we only uncovered very, very late uh, in the day, as it were. And um, and Stella's a secondary character who, without giving too much away about our darkest night, uh, survives to the end of the war. And it, it finds herself at loose ends. And, and I'd always wanted to know, after I finished the book, what happened to Stella? And, and, and that often happens with my secondary characters. I find myself wondering what becomes of them. And really, the only way for me to answer is is to include them in a, in a later story. And Stella was important to include for me because I wanted someone who who came to to England with a, a, an outsider's perspective, with a foreigner's perspective, with someone, for example, who who would have grown up with no internalized reverence for the royal family or really knowledge of uh, their role in, in Britain's institutions and traditions. Uh, so not necessarily that she would disapprove or, or 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 think ill of them, but just that they would be something unfamiliar that that she would have to assess uh, based on what she sees around her. And interestingly to- enough, she's a photographer. Of course, when we think of the royal family now, we're obsessed mm-hmm. with um, the photography surrounding them. Um, yeah, they're all celebrities. Uh, did you? Did you choose uh, her as a photographer because of the importance of photography itself and the royal family and appropriating their images, if you like? Um, not, not directly. I was interested in her being a journalist uh, more than anything else. I, I'm always fascinated by journalists. My, my grandparents were, were newspaper uh, people. Uh, my grandmother was a newspaper woman during the Second World War, um, and uh, and you know Stella uh, uh, speaks English quite well, but not well enough, I thought, to to be a, convincingly be able to write at uh, at the the fictional news magazine that has appeared in a number of my books called Picture Weekly, which is really a, a, a meant to be a stand-in for for Picture Post. Um, and Picture Post was one of those rare magazines of the time that not only had uh, a pretty uh, pretty solid journalism, but also uh, was known for its its photojournalism. And uh, it, I just thought it would be an, a really interesting job for her to have, and moreover, moreover one that that fascinated me. Um, you know, this is photography before the zoom lens. Uh, this is you know, right. they, oh, no, Susan Susan Sontag's great book on photography wasn't written that long after so the power mm-hmm. of photography existed in the 1950s and of course a, a book about england in the 1950s a novel about england wouldn't be true so to speak without a pub a central pub in it so yeah. i know you you have the the floundering blue lion as one of the central locations yeah. tell me about 
this imaginary blue line in London in 1953? So, so the blue line is, is a hotel that is, uh, that while it has a kind of a Victorian, it has a Victorian facade. Um, right, I apologize, that, a hotel rather than a pub. Yeah, no, we're, no like we're, there pub. is in fact a pub down the street where we spend some time called the Queen Vest, but uh, the, the blue line itself is, it was founded in 1560, and I, I, it's completely fictitious. I've put it on the spot of the very real and very, very nice to visit um, Sherlock Holmes Pub in Whitehall, uh, near Charing Cross. But, but uh, I appropriated the, the 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 piece of land that it sits upon, and then added my own hotel on top, which. I do remind readers, um, although, you know, I, I'm an historian, I'm also a novelist. And, and so I, I, I do allow myself to make things up from time to time. Well, I would um, hope so. I wouldn't be a novelist. Um, I wouldn't be much there of is, a novelist. Of course, a, a love be... element in the book alongside in parallel with this coronation, uh, kind of the beginning of a love affair, I guess, between the Queen Elizabeth and the English people. Yeah, um, yeah. You have another love affair brewing, which... You don't yeah, want to give away between, too much, but you might mention that too. Yeah, it's between my, so one of my central characters is Edie Howard, and she is the proprietor of the Blue Lion. She's an, inherited it rather unexpectedly, uh, somewhat in parallel to the queen becoming queen. Um, and it's a burden that that she's taken on without really any sense that that there's an alternative for her. Uh, at one point, she thinks, she reminds herself that, that she wouldn't be in this, position she's in without um, having had centuries of compliant ancestors, which is also the case for, for the queen and now uh, King Charles. Um, and, and so she's taken on the running of it. In effect, it just it, all of it falls on her shoulders. There's no one else really to share the, the burden of, of, of the work of, of worrying about the place. And she's constantly fearing she'll have to um, shut the hotel down, that, that she just will run out of money. She won't be able to to keep it afloat. Uh, if, um, if we could be transported back to the London of 1953, were there any seeds of the 1960s when London became such a scene? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're, you're, we're just starting to see it, um, you know, and certainly, you know, restaurants, for example, are, are starting to get a little more interesting. Um, you know, you have uh, certainly nothing like what we would see today. Um, but, you know, this student life is, is becoming, uh, you know, um, even more, how should I put it, um, you know, the students are kind of becoming more um, adventurous, I guess, in their outlook on life. Um, and, you know, 1953 is still on the early side for that, but you, you we see some glimmerings of that. You know, my characters visit uh, an Indian restaurant uh, in Soho, uh, which, was a, which was a hangout, not just for, for students uh, of Indian descent in London, but for, you know, university students who, who wanted a kind of a, you know, interesting, filling, not particularly expensive meal. And I, 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 I take my characters to what was a real restaurant then called Shafi's. Um, and, and, you know, all around, this is a period when London is really, really waking up after the war, if I can, if I can put it that way. Um, you know, it's, it's a long time before London is really rebuilt as we see it today. I mean, go to London, gosh, is, is there a building site left open in the entire city? Um, that doesn't have cranes or some kind of, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, some kind of building work going on. Um, when I was a student in England in the 1990s, 
Uh, I was in London every week doing research at the various libraries. And I still remember so many places that were still empty building sites that had been cleared after the war and had not been built on since then. Uh, and those that that's really not the case anymore. Uh, you, you mentioned um, Soho, which was the center of a euphemistically called an alternative lifestyle. Um, what was underground London like? Was there an underground London? I mean, of course, there was the, the tube, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, no, no, I know what you mean. I think it was building... I mean, I, it's not... It's How should I put it? The, you know, that's something, actually, I think I can see. I, you know, I've had thoughts about where I take my next books. How, how close to modern day do I come? Um, you know, the 1960s, to me, are a period of great fascination. My parents lived... Uh, were, were students at Oxford in the 1960s. And probably had a far wilder time, to be honest, than I did when I was at London, what was at Oxford in the 1990s. Um, you seem and, a rather wild person to me, Jennifer. Well, <laughs> I was, you know what, I as was. As wild the, as I Canadians, was, of course, can be. You're not the wildest exactly. people we're, in the world. We're never the rowdiest, unless it's, uh, unless it's you know, in, in, a, in a pub uh, on, uh, during the hockey playoffs, I suppose. But let's also remind ourselves of what the world was like in 53. Um mm -hmm. The most, I think, the most important event was uh, the death of Stalin, which um, of Stalin. I'm not sure if it had yeah. much of an effect on Queen Elizabeth, but he died in what March of that year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, in terms of a destabilizing effect, it certainly, it, you know, it, there were a lot of concerns that year uh, of, of what that would pretend for, um, uh, you know, for for the future, and uh, there, I think people. People were, you know, the post-war period, the immediate post-war period had been an inward-looking period of trying to rebuild. Uh, and then you, as we get into the 1950s, uh, we're, we're starting to see more and more people looking outward uh, to the world beyond and, and really a, an overwhelming feeling of, feeling of anxiety as, we, as what is the, the kind of the nascent uh, um, Cold War really begins to uh, well, I was going to say heat up, and in fact, like chill down. I suppose is the best. Well, though, with uh, Stalin's death, there were all sorts of opportunities. Finally, um, what about the Americans? Uh, Eisenhower was sworn in in January uh, mm -hmm. of 1953. The relationship, what historians, uh, journalists call this special relationship between mm -hmm. the United States and the United Kingdom was very much built, I think, in the post-war age. Was there much American influence? What was the American role? The Americans these days seem more obsessed with the royal family than the British themselves. Mm. Was there oh, much absolutely. interest in North America, uh, in, in the United States, or indeed Canada, in this I, coronation? I, I... I, oh, so in the court, in terms of the coronation, there's a massive amount of, of um, interest. Uh, and you see, so certainly in Britain, you see, uh, for example, as soon as it was announced that the coronation would be televised as well as filmed, uh, there was an absolute upsurge in demand for television sets. Um, and uh, that really paved the way for, for, you know, the, for television to overtake um, radio as kind of the, the, the central medium that the people would would um, would focus on in kind of their day to day lives as opposed to intermittently like going to the cinema um, and uh, the, the same to not the same degree but you do see that again in the United States and Canada 
Uh, certainly my parents, uh, who would have been in their early teens at the time, uh, had memories of the first thing that they ever watched on television was the coronation, uh, because in both cases, a neighbor had purchased a television and right. all the children in the neighborhood were, were arranged kind of in the front row. You know, of course, they'd be watching. Black and white, of course. I remember I was getting yeah. our first color TV in about 1967. So there was only black and white then. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in, in the very small screens and interestingly, you know, my parents had a memory of watching it to what in what they felt was live. Uh, it was not uh, the current, you know, the, there were the coronation was filmed. It was televised live in, in Britain, but it was filmed. And then the uh, RAF flew the, the cans of film across to Halifax and I think to New York separately. Yeah, I bet mm -hmm. I bet when people didn't think the screens were small, and indeed they weren't as small oh, as no. the iPhones that most people will be watching this coronation. Which is an excellent point. I mean, we're, we're you know, and it's all about perspective. And, and certainly to them, it was an... Literally, I think, perspective when it comes to watching iPhones, right? Exactly. And it was a transporting experience. The idea that one could participate at a distance in this, this very, very ancient ceremony. Um, you know, I've just written a piece for, for a Canadian newspaper, The Globe and Mail, about that will run in, as part of their uh, coronation coverage, talking about you know the, the the very ancient nature of the coronation, which to me is fascinating. There are very few things in our world today um, that are truly ancient that that are, are that are that we notice uh, that we can be a part of, however much it'll remove. And a coronation is one of them. Um, in its constituent elements, it's it's broadly speaking, unchanged since 973. Uh, Although and... Britain isn't unchanged. You, you, you could argue, you might not, but I think I would, that the worst was still yet to come for Britain after 53. Churchill was in power, was replaced by yeah. Anthony Eden and Suez. Britain lost its empire, became increasingly, at best, um, a footnote in world history. Mm -hmm. Is there a connection in your view um, as a historian and as a novelist, Jennifer, between Britain and our obsession with this odd family, the royal family, and Britain's increasing insignificance in the world? I think I think what has happened, again, I'm not British. I'm, I'm the outsider. I'm the Stella here. Uh, well, watch. the Canadians are about as close to being British as anyone. Yeah, you can be, we, you I can mean, be British on my show. We have this awkward relationship where the cousin that kind of, you know, is standing at the edge of the party really all the time. Um, what I find, what's interesting is I think that the, you do, you're quite right in saying this is, this is the, the, you know, the, this is a period that sees the collapse of, of, of uh, Britain's kind of prominence as a, as a, as a, a truly kind of uh, one of the great superpowers. Um, the, the Second World War finished it off, uh, not least because the Second World War beggared Britain. There, there was, there was nothing left in the treasury at the end of the war, um, and and so which is is not a great way to maintain one's one's um, status as a superpower. Um, and what has increasingly happened in the decades that have, that has that have followed. Uh, is that um, the the illusion of Britain as a world power has been maintained in large part uh, by the preeminence of the British royal family uh, at, in, in terms of how people regard Britain. They think of uh, the British royal family 
and in large part they would think of the queen uh, who really did more than any other single person uh, and when I say did, I, I don't mean she actively was out, you know, um, uh, massaging kind of, um, you know, uh, international, uh, uh, you know, international treaties or, or, or had any, you know, direct influence on, on uh, uh, you know, uh, Britain's role in, in kind of the world. But I mean that the way she was regarded and the respect in which she was held, uh, seems to have kind of conferred on on Britain at large um, a sense of uh, a sense of um, permanence, a sense of stability, uh, a sense of kind of being at the center of things that in with her absence, I'm not sure would have continued. Um, you only as we were talking about earlier, can you imagine if, say, her her disaster of an uncle had been at, at on the throne yeah i mean her disaster of a son is taking over now jennifer let's end with some um with some uh projections what what do you expect the uh coronation to be like next month so i mean it won't be as glamorous or as romantic as as june 53 will it no, I mean, the reality is, I guess it's, you know, the, the congregation uh, will be one quarter the size. Uh, it will be one third the length. Uh, I think a lot of the heraldic traditions will be just admitted because they... What about the quiche? Is the quiche going to be any good? Quiche. I think that must be their answer to coronation chicken, to be honest. Uh, I saw the recipe for it this morning and I thought, well, that looks interesting, but not... French, isn't it, for the royal family? Quiche? Well, you know, the royal family... Well, the royal... I, I mean, the royal family are, are German more than anything else frankly yeah, um, maybe we should have had uh, coronation sausages <laughs> exactly or or coronation kielbasa. um one thing the thing is it's pretty hard to put on a coronation uh in westminster abbey with so with with the architecture with the regalia with the crowns with the with the some in some cases quite ancient kind of robes of state it there's pretty much nothing you can do to make it look cheap um, it, you know, they just well, I was maybe, especially if Meghan Markle isn't showing up. Well, I, I'm going to reserve judgment. That was, that was that, unkind but, on Meghan. But, if she's know, watching Meghan, I apologize. I didn't mean that. Well, I feel as if, and you know, all they have to do is really run a carpet sweeper down uh, down the central aisle and, and throw in some flower arrangements, and the place is ready to go. I mean, you don't really have to do anything to make Westminster Abbey look spectacular. Uh, for my part, I think the, the part that I'm pretty interested in is the music uh, of all yeah. things. Yeah, oh, the music. Um, is, are there going to be any surprises? Do you think maybe Princess Di might show up? <laughs> Gosh, you know, it'll be interesting to see. I, you know, I wonder if little Louis or Prince Winston Churchill or maybe the Queen herself. I, you know, it, it's it, it's only an hour ceremony, so I part of me thinks that you know the children who might otherwise have, have provided a comic counterpoint probably won't have time to get too bored and fidgety. Um, I think it'll be it, it it will be pretty much as we expect. They're very you know the British royal family is very. Good otherwise, incredibly boring. Yes, I mean if, if what I'm hoping is that they've taken out because if you watch the full the entirety of the Queen's coronation from 1953, there are long stretches of extremely extremely boring things that really just have. <laughs> Kind of, you know, men in in uh, what look like rather antiquated and comical costumes, yeah. handing things to each other. I think almost all of that will be gone. What we'll be left with are these kind of six uh, historic elements, uh, that, you know, that include things like the oath, the anointing, the crowning, uh, and, and and don't forget the quiche, Jennifer. 
and the quiche. I you know maybe that's part of the 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 breakfast they will serve uh, later that day. Who knows? <laughs>